Hey everyone, welcome to episode 161 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina. We are your hosts. I'm Chris Castor-Apple. With me is Lee McLeod. Hey Lee. Hi Chris. How's it going? Pretty good. It feels like I was just here yesterday to record an episode. Well, you were just here yesterday. In fact, that's the same glass of water in front of you that you <laughs> yeah. were drinking yesterday. I even offered to bring it downstairs after I forgot. You said, no, I'm just going to leave it there. And then I'm drinking from it now. Yeah, so. aren't you glad you didn't take it downstairs? Um, yesterday we recorded our first ever bonus episode. So that is a patron-only episode. We're going to be doing these topic-focused episodes once a month. This past one was sideboarding and building sideboards for linear decks. And we focused on combo decks, engine decks, and aggro decks, and just sort of the considerations that you have to keep in mind when constructing a sideboard and when sideboarding with those decks. Um, And that is available for patrons. If you would like to become a patron and catch some of that sweet, sweet bonus content, head over to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. Um, I will post a sample of the episode so you can, you know, see if it Sounds like something that will be helpful to you. And if it is, we'd really appreciate your support. And if you already support us, then hopefully you find some useful stuff in that bonus episode. Our newest patron, Tomas S. Thank you very much for joining the Patreon. If you would like to be like Tomas, you can also join the Patreon, come hang out in the Discord, get some swag mailed to you, and, you know, listen to some bonus episodes. Yeah, I'm looking forward to doing more of those. The first one was pretty fun. It was really fun. I, I really enjoyed it. The prep that goes into it is a little bit, you know, try to go kind of deep and find examples beforehand of stuff that make it easier to explain the things we're talking about. And uh, definitely would appreciate any feedback on it that anybody has. Uh, We'd like to improve them as much as we can going forward. Yeah, for sure. Today, we are going to talk about a little bit of historic. We had the uh, SCG Tour Online's first historic tournament yesterday. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, we have the Mythic Invitational coming up, which is also going to be historic. Which does not look to be a particularly diverse and wonderful format. Oh, man. It doesn't. And it doesn't feel like the Mythic Invitational is going to, like, save us from what we saw based on, like, what people are self-reporting that they registered for the tournament. So, Well, let's let's just talk about, like, what people played at the Star City event. Yeah. So, actually, I should just pull up the top 16... Star City event uh, was won by Jun Sacrifice in the hands of David Inglis, aka Tangrams, who has top aided, I believe, every single one of these challenges, at least that I have turned into and watched the stream for, and maybe just every single one of them. I, yeah, every time I turn on Twitter on those days, it's just him saying, oh, top aided the, ne- the yeah. next SCG tournament with I, this deck. This is the first one that he won. And I think he made a really good meta call for it. The powerful stuff in the format seems to pretty much fall within two camps, which is either Sacrifice decks or Goblins decks. Yeah. And that's a lot of what's going on in the format right now. And the Sacrifice decks are pretty much what you'd expect if you were just playing Throne of Eldraine standard. Well, some of them are. There's actually, like, a bunch of different sacrifice decks. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's the red-black ones that use, like, all the cards from the auxiliary sets. Right. Like, Young Pyromancer. A Village Rite's not an auxiliary card. And Phyrexian Tower, those sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are neat, like, little engine combo Tokui decks. Yeah. Those are not really sacrifice decks 
yeah they really... have sacrifice themes right but they're they're mostly just value mid-range decks yeah they're more thoughtseize dreadhorde arcanist decks than like they have village rights as a good card in the deck but they're not you know they don't have mayhem devil they don't have cat oven they're not like real aristocrats decks the way that like this Jun sacrifice deck that tangram's played is which yeah just is ported standard Jun sacrifice <laughs> With with Thoughtseize. With Thoughtseize and Phyrexian Tower. Well, yeah, you can't forget Phyrexian Tower in your sacrifice deck. Oh, it's completely bonkers. Uh, the inclusion of... So you can kind of choose what you're doing to sort of go large with these decks. And Tangrams just went with the standard build of Trail of Crumbs. Once you have Witch's Oven and Trail of Crumbs and, like, claim the Firstborn in your deck, you can't really do Collected Company anymore. So... Why not just play Korvald's too? And that was the way he went over the top. And let me tell you, Korvald did not look beatable in the Sacrifice Mirrors. No, like the the main removal the other Sacrifice decks play is kind of like Claim the Firstborn or Priest of the Forgotten Gods. Mm -hmm. Those are like the removal tools. And it's very, very difficult to actually hit Korvald with Priest of Forgotten Gods. It's almost impossible. (laughs) And Claim the Firstborn can't target it. Right. So I think this was a really well thought out list to take to this tournament you have reasonable game against goblins with some instant speed removal and thoughtsies to keep muxes from just killing you and mayhem devil is quite good against goblins so you can kind of keep their board clear and then turn it around and kill them is the goal and korval does a great job of ending the game before they can like draw another muxes having Korvald in your deck makes the the sacrifice mirrors go pretty smoothly i would have to say yeah and let's the other elephant in the room is the goblins deck mm-hmm. right uh we talked about this really really early in jumpstart's lifespan because muxus was just such an incredible card yeah and it kind of fell off for a little while uh people just weren't playing that much goblins anymore or everyone was playing graph diggers cage or whatever it was for whatever reason mm-hmm. people just kind of stopped playing goblins and now it's just back and no cards have changed that I've actually seen. <laughs> no, I mean, people are a little more, you know, they cut, they trimmed like two of the Goblin Matrons or whatever and, and took out the Warren, or the Warren, what is it that comes with the 1-1? One, one? Uh, goblin Instigator, I think? Yeah, Goblin Instigator. They, they took out like the Goblin Instigators. So the lists are like a little different and they're like more focused on Krankos. Most of these lists have four Krankos as both a... An alternate plan and a way to like kind of guarantee that your Muxuses are lethal. Uh, and some of them are main decking thought seizes, but generally, you know, the goblins are the goblins. Like you're playing Skirk Prospectors, you're playing things that give your goblins haste, and Muxus is lethal most of the time. Yeah, you just play a Muxus and then hit a Krenko, give them haste, keep going if you want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because these decks all play a bunch of lords that give haste now. Yeah. And one of the things that Cranko does really well in the deck, having a lot of copies of Cranko, is it makes your conspicuous snoops a ton better. Yes. And yeah. that's huge. It's like the only activated ability you can actually use. Yeah. Because flipping Scurf Prospector is not great a lot of the time, unless you already have a Muxus in hand. Because mm-hmm. you can just draw a Scurf Prospector and then play it. Right. <laughs> it doesn't give you an extra value. But tap, make like three or four 1-1 one, one tokens is, is a really good ability to just get as a surprise on your turn. Yeah, you're, you draw your card on turn three, then you flip over Krenko, and you're like, oh, neat. I'm yeah. getting extra goblins now. Yeah. And you just 
cast what you can from your hand, tap your conspicuous snoop, and you're you're doing it. Yeah. It's it's neat. And Goblins is like kind of the deck it always is. You just play Muxus and kill them. Mm-hmm. It's just tested at this point. Yeah. And it's it appeared I, I saw a tweet that I told you about earlier today. You you saw it as well. Uh it was X Whale made this tweet saying that he saw a tournament where half of the competitors were just playing, you know, twenty X ones, the goblins deck, and the other half were playing, you know, Mayhem Devil. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and he said that talking about the Mythic Invitational coming up this weekend, yeah. so. We will see how that goes. I hope it's just not those, I hope it's not those dual decks, right? Right. Because even the SCG event had a Bant control deck and a Sultai ramp deck mm-hmm. just in the mix. There's also some, some various other decks. Yeah, well, and late in the tournament we saw some, you know, friends of the podcast doing pretty well. We unfortunately saw Mike Braverman have to play against Kyle Norman going into the top eight. Uh, or, you know, in the last round, and Kyle got the better of that match. Unfortunately, Kyle got knocked out in top eight, but congrats to him for getting that top eight. Obviously, I'm a fan of Mike <laughs> trying to make Is It Phoenix work and mostly being successful right up until the very end. Yeah, losing your winning in where, t- to someone you know, like, no, yeah. <laughs> is also a little painful. <laughs> uh, but, like, getting to that spot is really difficult to do, especially with a deck no one is really working on, mm-hmm. except for Mike. I haven't seen people play as a Phoenix and Historic in a long time. No, no. Um, but, you know, got a big boost in Stormwing Entity, just an alternate early threat that you can put into play. And, you know, unfortunately, it felt like the only, like, actually powerful thing it was doing most of the time is when it could get off of Finale of Promise, then it could really do some damage. But the spells in Historic are just kind of questionable. Lightning Axe is a huge upgrade to, to this type of deck. Yeah, that's true. Jumpstart didn't give us enough Ponders or Preordains. Right. <laughs> which, you know, why not? Just throw them in there, Wizards. Maybe a Manamorphose, whatever. Yeah, of course. A thing in the ice. Sure. Something. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, this 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 Phoenix deck is really nice. Yeah, I especially like the the, the Electromancer thing from Standard was always pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Where you got to t- your spells are inefficient by right. nature because they have to come through Standard now. So making that really efficient while being able to use those to power out Starwing Entity early mm-hmm. makes your bridge turns before you get the Phoenix stuff going. Like you're still doing things. Yeah. Whereas a lot of time with the Standard deck, it felt like when you did Electromancer on three and you did or on two and you didn't get the phoenixes to come out in the next turn or two, it felt like you were treading water a lot of the time. Right. And honestly, I wonder if there's a way, and it pains me to say this, I wonder if there's a way to build this deck that is not playing Arclight Phoenix, and then you can move away from some of the more awkward, like, discardy stuff, like maybe you don't have to play Thrill of Possibility as one of your cards, and you could lean more into a Drake's-style thing, between Stormwing Entity and Crackling Drake, and you could even find room for something like Maximize Velocity to give you just, like, lethal Crackling Drake turns or something like that. Yeah, that would be worth trying. I imagine Arclight Phoenix is really good against the Grindy Sacrifice decks, though. Maybe. Like the card. Yeah. Yeah, it probably is. I can see that, for sure. I definitely don't have a huge grasp on the matchup profile of this Arclight Phoenix deck. Well, now you have an Arclight Phoenix deck... And Arena. Yeah, I can probably get that. You're kind of priced into just playing. Uh, I will give it a shot, and I will lose some really frustrating matches, I'm (laughs) sure. We did see some Sultai Ramp. Ari Lax just, you know, top eights most of these tournaments with Sultai Ramp. 
you know, it's really just the same as the standard deck that he was playing. Let's count the non-standard cards in this deck, right? So there's uh, Pact of Negation as a one-of, and two Maelstrom Pulses, and a bunch of Thought Seizes, which of course is just a strict upgrade to Thought Erasure. Well, also Growth Spiral. Oh yeah, Growth Spiral's not standard now either. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, really, but really just doing the game plan of the standard blue-green decks. Hydrid Crisis, Uros, Nissas, and some interactive stuff along the way. Yeah, if you played standard in the past month, there's a chance you've played against mostly this deck. Yeah. Uh, he played a mirror, and his opponent had languishes where he had extinction events, and he was really getting the best of those exchanges. I don't know... So, like, you have tools here, right? Like, you have ether gusts, like a bunch of ether gusts after board and stuff, and extinction event is okay as long as you can then back it up, and Thoughtseize is certainly good against goblins. And you can kill your opponent back with Nyssa after you've done some amount of controlling Muxus from happening. But, you know, I don't know how often you can really close the door such that, like, your opponent's just going to keep getting chances to top deck Muxus and just kill you when it resolves. That's true, but one of the things I've noticed about goblins is that you, like, if your first wave gets dealt with Mm -hmm. in any meaningful way, you, you kind of are just low on cards at that point. So barring a conspicuous stoop or just enough mana to cast Muxus, that's not trivial. Like if Skirt Prospector dies and you don't have a tower, mm-hmm. you, you have to like assemble six mana somehow. Right. Well, and that's where Wily Goblin is like really good. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I mean, you, you certainly have game, but I, I feel like you do spend a lot of your games playing in fear of like the last couple of cards being the right cards to let them cast Muxus, basically. Yeah, that's why goblins are so good, right? Because after you deal everything, if they just can have can cast Muxus, it's probably going to win the game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm not like super high on Sultai Ramp going forward. I, I it just having to like deal with the threat, the twin threats of goblins and sacrifice at the same time when they're doing pretty different stuff to you, and then also like you have a chance of playing against these pyromancer decks, and these are these like. Pretty aggressive creature decks with just like wildly divergent plans that different cards are good against. Ultra grindy too. Yeah. Very, very grindy. Yeah. You know, some other stuff in here, but... Not really. Not, not much. <laughs> it's, it's, you say other stuff, but it's really just different variations of sacrifice decks, different goblins decks. Yeah. And there are like, you know, there are several different ways of building the actual sacrifice decks, not even counting the Lurus Pyromancer deck as, yeah. as part of that. So, you know, Tangrams' deck is a standard-based Jund deck that is just playing, that is playing Corvalds and is playing the Trail of Crumbs engine with mm-hmm. Witches Oven and, and the Cat. But he played against Michael Bonde in the finals, and Michael Bonde was on Collected Company. So still on Witches Oven and claimed the first board. So pretty, you know, 26 creatures is about as low as you want to go in a Collected Company deck. Uh, especially because a lot of these creatures are really not exciting hits. Yeah, collected company, company. collected company, and the blood artist is very nice because blood artist is so strong. But it is not that much battlefield presence, right? Especially if you're putting into play like a cat or a dreadhorde butcher mm-hmm. alongside it. But like this is a much more aggressively slanted deck than Tangrams' list, where yeah. this is a blood artist deck, and it's basically a black red deck splashing collected company. You know, dr- four dreadhorde butchers. 
and the blood artists like a lot of ways to just keep dealing damage to the opponent over the course of the game only one phyrexian tower in this deck seems a little low but yeah i i wonder like the mana is probably just generally not great this is only a 22 land deck if you're putting more phyrexian towers in play you'd probably have to be cutting spells for them because they are colorless lands when you're not sacrificing creatures Tangrams does have Gilded Goose to help his mana in the three-color deck, so that is a difference there. And there's also this 16th place list is a collect another collected company list that's not quite as focused as Bondi's list. Uh, has a couple of scavenging uses. I would probably prefer to play, you know, if I want to play a list like this, I would play the one that just has all of the face damage that I can possibly pack into it. If I'm running Dreadhorde Butchers, I want all of them. Yeah, it's... Weird. This this list by Casey Jarvis is more of a collected company deck than Bonday's because it, it went up in Midnight Ripers. It has more scavenging goods instead of Blood Artists, so mm-hmm. it's trying to get battlefield presence with the collected company just a little bit. Yeah, but it's still playing you know Dreadhorde Butcher and Blood Artist e- even in fewer numbers, which means like s- something has to give there. Like there has to be a correct balance of power there. Yeah, and I don't think. Collected Company is just not very impressive that I see out of this deck, unless they hit a 3-drop. Right, and and the way that, like, Bondi has balanced that out is basically, like, treating Collected Company as a burn spell. Like, it's reach, because your creatures deal damage to their face. Yeah, and this one from Casey, where you're not doing that, Mm -hmm. doesn't feel like it's what you want. Right, because if you've hit them for 12 damage... And then you collect your company and you, you know, they kill your stuff and then you get a scavenging ooze and a woe strider. Like I mean, that's, those are good creatures, but... Right, but they're not on plan. Yeah. I mean, you know, woe strider can certainly be on plan. Woe strider is the best thing you can have collecting yeah, company. It's, it's just so one good. Of the, it's just one of the best creatures in the deck. Yeah. Like, even if you don't have Mayhem Devil, it still does a lot for you. Your deck is so much better when you have a woe strider. You know, I played a lot of... You know, one thing that we've seen disappear from the Sacrifice decks, these are not Bolas' Citadel decks anymore. No. There's there's some in the sideboard usually, mm-hmm. but you don't see them as, like, play my Bolas' Citadel win the game decks anymore. Right. Because Bolas' Citadel isn't how you beat goblins. Mayhem no. Devil is how you beat goblins. Right. So you want to focus in on that strat. And it's also... You know, there's some amount of aggro decks in the format generally. Once your opponent deals damage to you... Uh, Citadel is actually, like, not great, and it requires pretty huge deck-building concessions. You know, it requires you to be running a bunch of Blood Artists and a bunch of mana in order to be able to cast it. Like, do you think Michael can cast uh, Bolas' Citadel in his 22-land deck with any regularity? With no Gilded Goose. No Gilded Goose or anything like that. Yeah, it just would never, ever happen. Bolas' Citadel made a lot more sense when Field of the Dead was in the format and you need to go over the top of it somehow. Because you were at 20 yeah. the whole time. <laughs> Until you actually died from like 30 zombies. Right. You're at 20 life. Yeah. Yeah. So you just have a lot of free spells and you will get there off of it. But that's just not really the case anymore. So these aren't Bolas' Citadel decks that, you know, we are doing different lower to the ground stuff than that. But yeah, so like... like the reason that I thought of that is because we were talking about Woe Strider. When I was playing a Bolas' Citadel deck, a lot of times against, you know, there were a lot of ag- aggressive red decks in the format. And obviously Bolas' Citadel was not good against them. 
but the plan that you wanted was just company into creatures, trade off stuff, and then escape a woe strider as the last thing going. It's and the largest creature. It's just really big, and then it kills them. The proto-Korvold. Yeah, I mean, it does not kill them as quickly as Korvold <laughs> kills them, certainly. But does Korvold come with a goat? No. Mm-mm. And woe strider comes with two goats a lot of the time. If you're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's historic... I hope that we see some other stuff at the Mythic Invitational. but I do too. I hope someone like brings some... There's some cards in Jumpstart I don't know exist in Historics. I'm sure, to this day. Right. So I hope someone finds those and just builds like some cool strategy in, or incorporates them into some cool strategy. But I think it'll be really hard to overcome not only just the power of goblins and the sacrifice decks, mm-hmm. which are topped off for a reason, yeah, but also the last year of Standard. Like, the, the decks we see in the SCG event were Sultai Ramp, Bant Ramp, and Arclight Phoenix deck is a cool one we shouted out. <laughs> but, like, the two ramp decks are just standard decks. Yep, just Uro Nissa decks. And I don't want to see the balance, the careful, planned balance of Goblins versus Sacrifice just upset by, oh, here's some standard decks. Yeah. You know, like, that, that's not an interesting viewing experience to me. Okay, Ishibashi's deck is actually, I mean, this is blue-white with Uro. Just this, at, at this point now, time-honored tradition of just putting Uro into your blue-white control Wrath of God deck. But that's basically a Pioneer deck ported to ported to Historic. Not really a standard deck ported to Historic. We didn't have this, like... No, it's it's a lot more powerful cards, right? Because right? you get Teferi, Hero of Dominaria, Searcher's Canta, Ra- actual Wrath of God, mm-hmm. and Censor. None of those cards are like in the same standard format. But it has essentially the same spirit yeah. as every Bant control deck we've seen in standard for the past like two or three years. Mm-hmm. Which is like a little bit of ramp cards, a big Planeswalker, and control the board, and Uro. <laughs> yeah. Is it weird that I kind of miss Search for Azkanta? No, point? I love that card. Yeah. It's my favorite card in Ixalan Block by a big margin i you know it's just kind of wild to me that thought sees into search for Azkanta is not like one of the good things and like that's just not really it's good too enough. slow it's just too slow but like that's such a powerful start but i guess just not really if the format slows down enough to where thought sees into searchers canta is good i'm gonna be playing a story yeah same <laughs> for sure but I mean, until then, I'll be enjoying my Godfather's gifts piles as I lose to goblins. This deck is certainly anticipating like a a slugging fest in the metagame. Four Uros, four Teferi Hero of Dominaria, two Narsets, three Shark Typhoons, and then Counterspells and Wrath of God. Like, it's not joking around. It knows what it's about. It's everything you need. Wrath of Gods and Uros. <laughs> <laughs> Solves a lot of problems and growth spirals. Yeah, of course. Should we just switch over to Zendikar spoilers now? Yeah, that's like the thing I want to talk about the most. Yep, I agree. Uh, These cards that I've pulled are in no particular order. In fact, they're mostly in the order that they were just on Scryfall's spoiler page. And I went, ooh, that's neat. And then like pulled it over into the Google Doc. So we can skip around as much as you want. First up, I've got Agadim's Awakening. So this is X, black, black, black for a sorcery. Return from your graveyard to the battlefield any number of target creature cards that each have a different converted mana cost, X or less, and it's the the black mythic of the land spells. The bolt lands. The, yeah. So the other side is a black 
mana producing land that comes into play tapped unless you pay three life. Yeah, Agadim the Undercrypt. Okay. I think this card is pretty cool. I think that it's like mostly on rate compared to like what is it? Gruesome Gruesome Menagerie. Gruesome Menagerie. Yeah. You know, it's like pretty close to that card, but also scales harder. And then it just has straight up a land on the other side of it when that kind of situational but powerful spell is bad. Yeah, I so, think this card's actually pretty good. Yeah. But really niche. Mm-hmm. And that if you're just playing a black deck, you're probably not going to want to include it unless you're doing specific things. Mm-hmm. Because it's not really a card. Like, no one plays Gruesome Menagerie, even if Mayhem Devil is, like, the thing to be doing, right? And mm-hmm. we have a bunch of ones, twos, and threes. Right. But Gruesome Menagerie is only a five mana spell. Yeah, exactly. This is a lot of different things. And in particular, you know, if you play, you mean you may be planning on playing this as a land seventy-five or eighty percent of the time. Yeah, and I think that's kind of how you have to consider it. Mm-hmm. It's mostly just your, I don't know, your extra land or two. Yeah, and then late in the game, it's a really valuable spell. I think you always play a couple of copies of these in a Luris deck. Oh yeah, of so course. like there just will be places for this to be really good. Thank goodness they nerfed companions. <laughs> Yeah. Cannot no, imagine playing with Luris for the next two years. Well, and Luris is still, like, pretty good in several formats. It is, yeah. But not Legacy. Not Legacy. It is not allowed there. Yeah, just like Zerda. Yeah, I'm, I am I really think that this card is cool, and I'm psyched to play with it because it's the type of card that... I, I always wanted to play with Gruesome Menagerie, but it's a situational five-mana sorcery. <laughs> like, Hard to ask those to be playable often. Right. But this... Yeah, man. Cost is really low. I'm down. I will foresee never playing this personally, <laughs> but I acknowledge that it's like a pretty good card. Yeah, that's fair. A uh, card that is pretty good against any deck running Agadim's Awakening is Shadow's Verdict. Three black black for a sorcery. Exile all creatures and planeswalkers with converted mana cost three or less from the battlefield and all creature and planeswalker cards with converted mana cost three or less from all graveyards. That's weird. I, until you read it, I didn't even realize it did the graveyard thing. Yeah, I, I think that's really relevant. I, yeah, because my initial evaluation of this card was like a ritual of soot that hits planeswalkers and exiles, but it costs an extra mana, mm-hmm. which makes it really bad to me. Because honestly, a lot of the times I was playing ritual of soot, if I was on the play, it was okay. Yeah, if and if you were on, on the draw, draw you were it dead. was horrible. Yeah, <laughs> and this is a mana more expensive, right? But, I don't think this is a great tool against the aggro decks, yeah. but any grindy, graveyardy creature deck, like, this is a really powerful tool against them. It also is not dead game one against Uro decks. Right. When they just throw an Uro in the graveyard on turn three or four. You can at least snag it from the graveyard. Yeah, I mean, you may wait until they escape it once, and so at least, like, you're trading on mana relatively evenly. But, yeah, like... It does something against those decks. And even if they've cycled through a bunch of Uros and then you get an in-play, you, you get, get all of them. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I think this card's mostly unplayable still. Yeah, it's five. <laughs> it's just way too expensive yep, yep. for such a limiting effect. Like, the last time this effect was actually... I won't even say good. Mm-hmm. But Ritual Soot wasn't played that much. And the, a card that was very similar to Ritual Soot previously was Consume the Meek, mm-hmm. which was a five-mana Ritual Soot. But it was an instant. Yeah. Yeah. And this is not an instant, and we know Ritual, so it's not that great. So I don't expect this card to be very good either. No, but I think it's a very different thing. I think that generally it's for shutting down 
graveyard synergy graveyard synergy creature decks it's it's way better at doing that than any like conventional wrath right but you're gonna have to back it up with stuff you yeah know? it's a cry of the carnarium that like they can't do anything to not get crushed by basically and so you know i don't really want this necessarily even in my main deck but if there is and this is much less relevant since cat is banned but you know if there were a cat deck this would be unbeatable for a cat deck. I mean, you still have Woestrider. You still have some sort of engine card in, in that Woestrider. So if there's like more cards from Zendikar, you can just shut down everything. With this, right. Yeah. Including Escape from Woestrider. Right, right. So if anybody is doing Lura stuff, Kroxa stuff, Woestrider stuff in a deck that is like built around that, like this card is just a nightmare for them. All right. Next... There is Kazandu Mammoth, mm-hmm. I think is the name of this card. We're looking at the Spanish one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's the it's where it got spoiled from. That's where the image came from. So So it's a, a creature elephante. Mm-hmm. It has landfall, it's just the plus two plus two landfall yeah. whenever you play a land. And it's just the three mana three three. Yeah, one GG three three. And the backside is kind of like tapped green source. Mm-hmm. It's obnoxious. That we can't just say forest, because it's, like, very specifically not it a forest. It is not a forest. It's some Kazandu land that comes into play tapped. Yes. I love a landfall creature that's a land on the other side to play in your landfall deck if it's playable. It's just so cute. I, I like that a lot, too. And I think it's a good sign that this cards are rare. Mm-hmm. Because even though the rate is not fantastic on this card, right. it's, like, decent. I mean, it's a three-drop that attacks for five or more. That's fine. That's good. I, I like in if you can build a landfall deck, I like that you can go into top deck mode and draw a creature, and you were hoping to draw a land, so you just play it as a land. Yeah, I, I think that flexibility, like allowing you to go up to 28, 30 lands in your landfall creature, your aggressive red-green creature deck that wants to make land drops when it wants to make land drops, but can't really afford to get flooded flooded. Like, this is... If that deck exists, then this is certainly good in it. I think I saw Dom Harvey also trolling on Twitter about this card, where, you know, it's a green creature that's also a land. Mm-hmm. So you can pact for an amulet. <laughs> <laughs> and it pressures Ashiok. Perfect. But it's really just probably not playable, that deck. I don't foresee this seeing modern play. But I do really like this the interaction, which we'll talk about later on, uh, where you can play this land tapped and then pick it up with a bounce land. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really like that interaction with the Bolt Greenland. Yes. Yeah. 100%. But not so much this card. I think this card is like fine for standard. I'd be excited if it sees play because it's just like an innocent fine mammoth. Right. That does deck smoothing stuff inherently that is good for a creature deck like this. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope, I pray that the landfall deck in Zendikar is good. I like the aggressive landfall decks from the previous, previous, previous Zendikar. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that if you are allowed to play multiple spells that you want that are lands on the other side in that deck, like that goes a long way towards making the inherent tensions of the deck like not actually a problem in constructed. Especially since you have fetch lands like you did in the right previous two Zendikars. Yeah, I mean you're still playing. You're definitely playing four Fable passages in your landfall deck. Yeah, but those are not ideal. No. Next, we have Undo Inversion. This is a six white white sorcery. Destroy all non-land permanents. And on the other side, it's a comes into play tapped white source. Just kind of like the same as the black land, mm-hmm. honestly. Just to come to play tapped land that doubles as a 
a big old planner cleansing. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes you just, you don't want to play planner cleansing in your deck, no. but sometimes you need a planner cleansing. I've played many control decks where the only thing that could possibly save me is a planner cleansing. Mm-hmm. And I know I have no hope because I just didn't put it in my deck. Yeah. Cause it's not good. No, it's too expensive. And it's often late enough in the game that like an eight mana planner cleansing would save you. Yeah. If I had an eight mana planner cleansing, that I had just played previously as a land to be, that's fine. I gave myself the out to mm-hmm. have it in my deck for this board state. Yeah. And the other side's, you know, just a land, which is great. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sure this will see some play. It's not going to be like a backbreak, you know, it's not going to be a format defining card or anything. I like think that. most of these dual faced land cards are not going to be backbreaking. Mm-hmm. They're just really good role players, I think. Yeah. Kind of like the adventure cards that aren't Brazen Borrower. Right. Sure. Because <laughs> Brazen Borrower is a little too good but the other ones are pretty balanced i i like brazen borrower oh i like it too but it, you can't tell me that card is like in a good spot balance wise see i kind of think it is i i don't know like what is it doing that is like bad for any particular format i think it's mostly doing good stuff it's pressuring planeswalkers i think it is doing good stuff but mm-hmm. i think it does too much stuff for too efficient a cost See, I think you have to push the rates on a card like that to make it good enough in order to put it in the format to do the things you need to do. So you can flash it in to pressure a Narset or what, like, the card needs to be pretty good in order to allow you to have that card in your deck. I think that's just a reflection of how strong the cards have gotten recently, that we just need something like Brazen Bar. No, I agree (laughs) completely. But in order to have, like, a Flash Flyer utility thing be good enough, it's got to be really good. So, I I like Brazen Borrower, given those constraints, basically. Well, I hope the land cycle, the double face cycle, is not all Brazen Borrowers. They don't look to be. No, they don't look to be. So, we've got some more of these mythic ones. So, again, you know, they're the Bolt Yourself lands to have the option to come into play untapped. The blue one is Seagate Restoration for blue, blue, blue. So, seven mana sorcery. Draw cards equal to the number of cards in your hand plus one. You have no maximum hand size for the rest of the game. And the other side is a land that you can pay three life to have come into play untapped. Why'd you put this one on the Google Lock? Well, people are really excited about this one. I have seen one person exactly excited about this. <laughs> Actually, two. I'll take it back. There are two. Mm-hmm. It's uh, Shaheen Sarani mm-hmm. and Zach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think this card is very good. I think it's okay and will be like low cost enough to put into a deck that it will be it will see some amount of play but a seven mana card drawing like yes i get that it's on the other side of a land but a seven mana card drawing spell is not going to get you out of much no it's not and this doesn't even draw like three cards it it's a conditional number of cards right you have to still have two other cards in your hand to make this draw, it, like at least they put that cards in your hand plus one thing on there, or else it really wouldn't draw very many cards at all. Like if you're in a spot where you have very few cards in your hand, like zero or one cards in your hand, mm-hmm. and you need to cast this to like get resources to catch up, and for some reason you don't have access to Ura, right? <laughs> that means you're spending seven mana to draw two cards, which is a horrible rate right the ideal spot for a seven mana card draw spell is my hand is empty and this is just completely refilling me here you want to have spent your resources or else you haven't spent all of your cards so your opponents probably still have cards in play that you haven't dealt with yet because 
you haven't traded evenly on stuff. So you're still taking hits, which you can't do and cast a seven mana do nothing sorcery. And if you have like five cards in hand or six cards in hand, the card doesn't do anything. Right. Like you, you could draw seven or six cards or what have you, but you didn't need to. Right. You might as well just play it as a land at that point. Yeah. And I mean, like that is the thing that obviously makes this enticing to a certain type of player is but that it is a land on the other side. It's the opposite of the planner cleansing land we were just talking about, mm-hmm. where the planner cleansing is like a really niche effect you almost never want, mm-hmm. but it bails you out of situations. Yeah. This is a card that won't bail you out of anything. Right. Because it takes your entire turn, if you're behind, to draw a couple cards. That's not good enough. Right. And, like, imagine... So you're, like... You can't just, like, do this in a control matchup or something like that. You can't, like, play draw go and then be like, here's my seven mana. Like, it's going to get mystical disputed and then you're going to lose. The opportunity is a six mana instant that draws four cards. Mm -hmm. The last time that was printed, it saw zero standard play. Yeah. Granted, it wasn't a land on the other half, but... Yeah. And so, like, I'm prepared to be, like, pretty wrong on this card, given that we haven't had spells that are lands on the other half. Like, it will find some application. It will see some play. I... It doesn't inspire me to build control decks. It's a, it's like a one-of for mm-hmm. some situation I don't know yet. Right. I mean, because... Against aggressive decks, the other side is absolutely like just it comes into play tap land. You can't be paying three nope. life for your lands. Absolutely so. not. <laughs> Let's talk about the red one though. Yeah, because I like this one. This is a Shatter Skull Smashing. It's XRR for sorcery. Uh, Shatter Skull Smashing deals X damage divided among as you choose among up to two target creatures and or planeswalkers. If X is six or more, it deals twice that damage divided as you choose instead. Yeah. So it's and like on a- the other side, it's a bolt land plague windy kind of thing you can only hit creatures and planeswalkers you can't expel your opponent out of the game with it yep. but it's just a big old removal spell on the other side of a land yeah so if you do this for three it costs five mana and you get to bolt two different things no right oh, oh you oh, oh okay i'm misreading this so it's not you get three damage divided as you choose among two things yes. you can two something and one another something right okay once you pay six then you get double x but, so then I would be able to three both things. Well, you'd be able to... Or six both six things. both <laughs> things, yeah. Um, so, like, it is... You, you know, it's expensive and it's big and it's, like, not incredible. But it is on the other side of a land. And it is a thing that it's like, oh, I got kind of flooded this game. My opponent has two creatures left and I've played a lot of lands. We'll just kill the two creatures. Yeah, I, I like expensive spells on the back of lands especially ones that do something unlike the blue one yeah because the red one if you're playing any kind of red deck really mm-hmm. it's just a fine removal spell if it's on the back of a land and it lets you keep hands that you know since it comes to play untapped you can afford to take some damage in your aggressive deck and yeah. just get on the board yeah i mean i i wonder exactly what deck is going to be making the most use of this i don't think it's that great Mm-hmm. rate for any kind of aggressive deck right and exactly. slower red decks are few and far between mm-hmm. nowadays but i mean we just saw team or wreck and that's a slow red deck sure so if there's anything rampy that uses right. these land spells like the, the red one's not that bad or even just like the red if there's a red green landfall deck like that is an aggressive deck that probably ends up with a lot of lands in play 
and then you can use this as a very good expensive removal spell that you get some advantage off of. I mean, this will do something for sure. Yeah, I, I'm sure this one will see play, even if I can't picture exactly where. Because mm-hmm. it just is a generally good effect. Yeah, yeah, I like it. Next we have Thieving Skydiver. This is one and a blue for a 2-1 flyer with kicker X. X can't be zero. When it enters the battlefield, if it was kicked, gain control of target artifact with converted mana cost X or less. If that artifact is an equipment, attach it to Thieving Skydiver. This is going to be an an unreal card in EDH, if nothing else. Yeah, steal your soul ring. Give me that soul ring. There we go. Or Mana Crypt, or whatever yeah. they have. Or give me that Skull Clamp, draw two cards. like <laughs> Stealing Skull Clamp that auto-attaches. Yeah. That's pretty funny. <laughs> I, yeah, I can't see too much. It's weird, right? Because this is a rogue, and it's a 2-1 flyer, like a Flying Goblin Piker rogue. Mm-hmm. So if there's any rogue synergy deck that mm-hmm. people are trying to do, because there's a lot of rogue cards in this set. It probably sees play and just ignores the fact that Kicker exists mm-hmm. for the vast majority of games because not that many artifacts are played in standard. Yeah. If some of the equipment sees play, like maybe you can grab that, but I wouldn't count on it. I mean, I can also see this in older formats too. It's just like a pretty efficient way to get rid of cheap artifacts. If you're playing like some sort of Ether Vile Mirror, you know, this just really messes that dynamic up. Ooh, Merfolk in Modern? Yeah. Now it gets an Aether Vial Stealer. Yeah. You can always have one in those matchups. I mean, that's like pretty sweet. It is good. Like, they spent a turn or two putting counters on it. They maybe made one guy with it. You just use your mana to steal it. Now you have an Aether Vial. That's cool. That is cool. It's very situational. It is very situational. And yeah, I mean, you probably need more decks in the format with artifacts to steal. But like, this effect is really powerful if there are cheap artifacts running around. Sadly, I don't think really any format has cheap artifacts running around right now, other than actual vintage. Yeah, I guess stealing an astrolabe is not necessarily what you want to do. I mean, theoretically, stealing an astrolabe is good in, like, Legacy. Mm -hmm. But what deck actually wants a 3-mana 2-1 flyer that steals an astrolabe? Right, I mean, there needs to be other relevant artifacts running around so that, like... If, like, most of the decks in... A bunch of the decks in Legacy are astrolabe decks... But there's a healthy subsection that's running like Mox Diamonds and stuff like that. Yeah. Then maybe you are into doing something like this. But as it stands right now, it's like a card. I, I'm i going to pick up a copy of it for my cube. I don't know if it will remain in the cube. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting enough that it's worth taking a look at even as more decks get developed in like Modern and Pioneer. Yeah. I, I think if they're... Is a you know if cheap equipment are like a thing in standard, you know this is probably a pretty fine card for a, a creature like stealing an equipment on a bo- like and a, on a body and then just attaching that like that's a really powerful effect. I'm just a I, I just thought of this card against Pioneer. Oh, it's got the scissors card on it. Insol artifact. Oh yeah, yeah. against Insol. <laughs> yeah, against Insol. You can steal their dark steel citadel for a mana, and you get it as a five five. <laughs> Or, or you, even if they haven't enchanted it, stealing their land with a 3-mana 2-1 is really good. Or you take their Ghost Fireblade and equip it. Take their Bowmat Courier. Yeah, this is a beating against that deck. Yeah, this this card can check the uh, insurgence of the Insul decks. Yeah, for sure. Steal your clue. I, I think that this is cheap enough and efficient enough at the very specific thing that it does 
that it will pop up in places and times. Yeah. Especially in older formats. It's like a one or a two of I wouldn't mind just owning. Yeah. Just have at hand. Yeah. Because every once in a while it'll be the right thing. And if some number of one mana equipment are doing things in standard, like this is really good against that. Do you want to talk about the one mana equipment? We have yeah. like slightly out of order. Sure. It's Skyclave Pickaxe. It's a green mana equipment uh, that equips for two and a green. But when it enters the battlefield, you can attach it to target creature you control, much like Embercleave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's got landfall. <laughs> it's a little different from Embercleave. Yeah, it doesn't have flash. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and it's five mana cheaper, so it's, you know. Way better. Balancing factors. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, green mana it attaches to something when you enters the battlefield. And it has landfall whenever it lands the battlefield. Equipped creature gets plus two plus two until after. So it's an adventuring gear. It's green adventure. adventuring gear, yeah. Adventurer's gear? Adventuring gear? Adventure. Adventuring, adventuring gear, I think. Gear. Yes. <laughs> it's not a big deal. But you don't have to pay to equip it, which is not... A, like, probably this is worse than adventuring gear a little bit in a lot of situations. If we don't really have one-drop creatures anyways, you know, the, like, cast it on turn one was, like, fine, you know? Yeah, if you're casting on turn one, there was the old landfall decks had steplinks and goblin guide. Right. Nowadays, we're looking at just the steplinks variant. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, there's another one drop for those decks. But if there isn't, I mean, if there is, this is this is an yeah, upgrade. Right. It, I mean, it costs half as much the first time. You just pay a mana, put it on a creature, and it's the reequipping thing won't matter. Because you used to could re-equip Adventuring Gear and hold a fetch land open. You don't really have that many fetch lands anymore. Right. This isn't playing offense and defense. Like, you know, that's a big cost of these free first equip but expensive equip cost cards is you can't play that, like, attack with a creature, equip to a blocker thing. But, right, that doesn't matter if it's a landfall-based pump. Right, exactly. And this one I like a lot if the landfall deck exists because you can out-tempo people who aren't expecting it Mm -hmm. while still having some sort of little late game ways to use your mana basically gives you incentive to hold your land drop no matter if you have landfall things or not right yeah and i mean this is haste damage you know the turn you cast it if you are playing a land it's that's two extra damage coming at them if you are getting multiple landfall triggers that's even more and yeah if if the landfall deck Mm -hmm. is good then I, this is probably a part of it. One small downside that I'm just thinking of, though, is the mana. Mm-hmm. Because the, there is a red-green pathway, but if you play a red one-drop, you can't play this green card before you play a land. True. So we gotta have something to replace Pelt Collector. <laughs> yeah, I don't think... Like, uh, that will absolutely come up. Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily the most important thing, because your turn two that you're hoping for is not... I mean, I guess it makes it harder to do one drop, one drop, one drop. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Sure. But I think a lot of your games are going to be one drop, two drop. Play this, play something else. Right, yeah. Can we talk about the one drop next to it? Mm, Do we have to? You put it on the sheet. I didn't put it on the sheet. This is uh, Weeward Guide Beast. It's a red mana 2-2 beast with trample and haste. Wow, that's a really good card, Lee. Well, let me read the rest of it. Uh, whenever it deals combat damage to a player, you have to return a land you control to your hand. So, obviously this is, like, it doesn't work as, like, a goblin guide playing, like, fair and stuff. 
The thing that really bugs me about it is just like the timing of the returning a land thing makes it just not even really work in a landfall deck either. Yeah, it's after you've dealt damage. Yeah. Like, great, I have this land in my hand post-combat. I can play it next turn. Next turn is like a million years away. Yeah, it's also weird that it's kind of being a goblin guide impression. Like, it has guide in the name and there's goblin in the background. Yeah. But it doesn't do the thing you expect goblin guide to do, which is, you know, be a good haste thing that does something when it attacks. Mm-hmm. It does something when it deals damage. So if they block it, there's it's no downside. Except for it has trample, so if they chump it, you still get the downside, which feels horrible. Right. And, like, they really get the choice of... Because, like, sometimes returning a land to your hand is what you want in these landfall decks, but they get to choose whether to allow that to happen. If, if they have blockers and you have multiple attacking creatures, like, they get the agency there. The, the real problem with this card is that it stops you from playing the game. Yeah. Like, you cannot play this card early. You have to play it on, like, turn three or turn four. And by then, it's just a 2-2 haste that's probably outclassed by your opponent's board. And you can't play it early because you can't afford to just only play off one land for the entire game. Yeah. I mean, you're getting a lot for one mana in that it is two power of haste for one mana. If it's part of your just, like, laying on pressure from, like, you were putting pressure into play on turn one, turn two, and this is your, like, turn three and your deck is all cheap spells and you're reusing landfall or whatever... But it's so narrow in the types of games where it's going to be good that I think that a lot of times this is a, like, you draw it and you're like, well, but this game state is not acceptable for this card. Yeah, it really seems to need to be pumped in some way to have use out of it, but I'm not really interested in doing that. You don't want to, like, you want your one mana stuff to be self-sufficient. Just be an attacking creature. Yeah. I, I would rather just have Goblin Guide, please. Yeah, just, well, I mean... <laughs> just reprint Goblin Guide. Goblin Guide is pretty good. We have Brazen Bar now. It'll be fine. <laughs> we are losing, you know, All-Star Scorch Spitter, so... Yeah, we have to replace it with, you know, somewhat All-Star Goblin Guide. <laughs> the last time it was in Standard, it was never in a top deck. All right. We can't keep scrolling without going over Turn Timber Symbiosis. Well, I've been saving it for not last, but later yeah can we talk about it now? i really like this card this card's really good do you want to read it yeah so it's turn timber symbiosis is a seven mana sorcery it's for triple green you can look at the top seven cards of your library uh put a creature card from among them onto the battlefield and if it's a th- convert if it has converted mana cost three or less it enters the battlefield with three additional plus almost one counters and the rest go on the bottom in a random order and on the back side is one of the bolt lands the green one. The green one. Yeah, I mean, how many of these can you put into Amulet? Can you put four of these into Amulet? I think you can definitely start with two, mm-hmm. and then we'll play from there. Yeah. Because <laughs> this card is nice in Amulet. I, I think the speculative list that Will tweeted today just straight up had four of these in it. <laughs> okay. I mean, it has the cool interaction I was talking about a little earlier, where you can just play it as a land earlier. Granted, you can even play it as a tapped land in Amulet, because if you have an Amulet... It untaps. Yeah, true. <laughs> and or, or you can just play it, you know, bolt yourself on turn one to play it. And right, emulate it right. this is one of... You have to have some number... There's a certain number of lands in your deck that you have to have, and you can't go below, like, 14 or 15 that play an amulet on turn one. Yeah. This is one of those. And, and it's a green source, too, so it's not like the colorless utility lands that play amulet. It mm-hmm. also plays Sir Card Tribes Count. Yeah. Which is huge. Yeah, yeah. 
because Castle uh, Garenbrig is the green one. That was a huge pickup for Amulet. It doesn't play either Cotter in turn one, mm-hmm. but it's you're still playing a bunch of them because it's so good. Yeah. Now you have an extra land that's also a utility spell in the back half. Right. That does cast both of your important one drops. Yeah, true. You know, we had a lot of these Amulet decks running just a ton of Castle Garenbrigs. There, you know, this does have some tension with that because, like, you're probably cutting a forest for at least one of these. You, you know, you're making it a little harder on yourself for Castle Garenbrig to come into play untapped. And Castle Garenbrig doesn't contribute to casting this thing. But the casting this thing is your, like, fail-safe thing that you have access to. I mean, I would, I would, I need to see Will's list or build some lists with this deck because I don't, I think you can cut spells for this card. Oh, yeah. Not I think, just land. I think you do go up to a very high land count to put this in the deck for sure. Because, yeah, there's always that tension between Forests and Garenbrig. Mm-hmm. But if the ideal is to play one of your one drops, Scout or Amulet, mm-hmm. both of those already get around Garenbrig's downside because you can. If you have the scout, you, you just have put extra land drops, yeah. And if you have the amulet, the gamer comes play tapped, untapped anyway. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and obviously, the front half of this card just gets pretty old titan. <laughs> yes. So mainly, we're talking about it in amulet because I think it's that's where it shines the brightest. Yep. And even if you miss the titan, you get a five seven dryad. Yeah, <laughs> you do. Or a, a a slightly less large Azusa, a four six Azusa. <laughs> <laughs> Those will brawl. If you're, like, playing against, you know, Prout, if they're attacking you with Monastery Swiss Spear, and you're just like, I, this is all I got. Big Azusa. <laughs> just big Azusa. <laughs> you hit the Titan because they're dead, and then you don't. Well, here's a large Azusa. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to kill me with your lightning bolts now. I mean, like, that is a nice little bonus. It would be disappointing to put an Azusa into play. But give it some stats, and that that's a little oh, makes up for missing. Well, more than any other type of land in this cycle, this one is really a free spell in Amulet because mm-hmm. you can always play it early and pick it up with a bounce line and yeah. pass the spell. Yeah. So you're always getting paid dividends off of this card. Yep, it's pretty real, and it'll probably see some standard play too. Yeah, it's just a fine spell. Yeah. Uh, you probably see it in any deck that's interested in casting seven mana cards mm-hmm. like any ramp deck any bigger green deck it can't get ugin which is a little sad but i don't know you'll live yeah i mean as long as you just have a bunch of creatures in your deck wonder what is the best like threes to hit and give three plus one plus one counters to yeah <laughs> um i'll come back to you on that but it but like in standard like that clause is actually like a huge deal because you can only play so many gigantic things and you know Oh no, I missed, but I did hit this three, but it is a you know seven seven or whatever now. Like there's a three mana clone that's a land on the other side that copies one of your creatures. Oh, so that could be anything. Yeah, that could be your best, you know, counter card. <laughs> I mean, you know, you probably can run a couple of copies of these in a landfall deck because it comes into play untapped. It if you have played a bunch of lands because you've been landfalling, you can cast this, and then the landfall guys with three plus one plus one counters and then landfall pumps are like pretty gigantic like that elephant is a six six that gets plus two plus two is just an eight eight trample if you hit it with this thing yeah that's pretty nice i hope we see a bounce land i know it's probably not gonna happen but i, I would be just down for a double colorless bounce land in zendikar just yeah to, and just to do landfall synergies with sure that would be neat um moving on to some other stuff we've got this really cool design magmatic channeler 
one and a red for a 1-3 human wizard. As long as there are four more instant and or sorcery cards in your graveyard, Magmatic Channeler gets plus three plus one, so it becomes a 4-4. Four, four, and it has tap, discard a card, exile the top two cards of your library, then choose one of them. You may play that card this turn. I love this card. Me too. It is so cool. Mm-hmm. It is a card selection card. It's got like the impulse draw that Red gets. Yeah, I mean, it's really rummaging. a rummaging. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But it also fuels itself to be huge. Like a 4-4 four, four for 2 mana is Tarmogoyf level. Yeah, it's a werebear. Yeah, it is a werebear. Yeah. The weird thing about this is when I am trying to figure out what decks it goes into, I just start putting it in any deck with a red mana. <laughs> and I don't know how wrong or right that is. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm i reminded a little bit... Like, I think this card actually does play in like several different types of decks. I'm reminded a little bit of... I remember Runaway Steam King got spoiled. Mm-hmm. And people were thinking about it and trying to like use it as an engine card. But like the thing was that it was just good in a red deck and you didn't need anything fancy to make it really good yeah you played red spells you attacked then you played more red spells right and this obviously demands some more of you you know to make this a real body you need quite a few instants and sorceries yeah and they need to be cast or discarded right and this doesn't really give you card advantage unless you're doing graveyard stuff that is enabled by the discard but looking at two to get something good out of it is, like, really powerful. That's a lot of looks. We are... So this card will be legal at the same time Innistrad is, which I assume is a graveyard set. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'm going to pick up many of these yeah. <laughs> just because I think it's a solid card. I don't know if it'll find homes right away. It just seems generally good, if not incredible. It's just one of those... And it costs two mana. Like, this is a card that it feels really good to cast on turn two. I it has think. a really low floor. Right. Like, and it just... You you keep a, you know, a two-land hand with one with this in it. You play it on turn two, and you just feel safe. Because if you miss your third land, but you untap with this, like, you're probably going to make land drops from there. It's just a very good looter for that. And if you have graveyard synergies, that's a big bonus. And... I'm fine getting paid for having a lot of instants and sorceries in my deck. Instants and sorceries are pretty good. Yeah, I, I remember playing against Gatu Lava Runner for quite a while. Mm-hmm. That card required half as many, but burn spells are real spells. Yeah. <laughs> Even yeah. if you're just playing as like a traditional red deck. And I mean, this is doing a real thing until it becomes a 4-4. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, Gatu Lava Runner as a 1-2, very unimpressive. Yeah. This card is a 1-3. I mean, it's not the greatest, but it does rummage, so. Mm-hmm. And rummage is really well. Yeah. Too deep is really deep. I, I am really excited to play with this card. This is, like, the kind of two-drop that I'm just so delighted to have in my opening hand. It's so flexible. I don't, like, I don't know where it's going to go exactly, mm-hmm. but it just has good text kind of all around, so yeah. I'm into it. Yeah, for sure. Next, we have Luminarch Aspirant. One and a white for a 1-1 human cleric. At the beginning of combat on your turn, put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature you control. Nope, not interested. Probably not good, (laughs) but it does, like, you know, generate stuff over time. Haste damage if you're putting it onto creatures that can already attack, but it's probably just a little too slow. I'm going to mention the only thing I think is interesting with these plus one, plus one counter cards, which is the hardened scales creature Mm -hmm. in the last core set. Yeah. 
it's a green white card, and there's a bunch of green cards with plus one one counter synergy in the set. I mean, if this triggered ability is at the beginning of your uh, beginning of combat, put a put two plus one plus one counters on target it's creature. Very good. That's really good. But I mean, like, if you play this on turn two, it's attacking as a three three on turn three. Oh yeah, sure. Like it's if not you're just putting counters on itself, right? Like it's not bad, you know. I I don't know that actually. <laughs> well, but I mean, like. That's like an okay rate. That yeah, that's a fine rate. Yeah. The problem is that you're you have to ask a lot for cards to be good mm-hmm. in aggressive strategies, especially in white. Yeah. Which doesn't have very many good cards for it nowadays. Right. So if we can start building these good aggressive decks that are interested in like kind of small bodies up front but give haste damage, mm-hmm. yeah, you can sell me on it. But, like, as of the cards I'm looking at right now, I don't really see it making any kind of splash. One thing that bums me out is the one-drop uh, party creature. that The cleric? The, yeah, it's also a cleric. So if you go that guy into this guy, it's still... A cleric. It's Yeah, it's just two clerics. So that's a little... You know, it'd be really cool if you could go that guy into this guy. It becomes a 2-2. Put a plus one, plus one counter on it. You're attacking with a 3-3. Three, three. Yeah, it'd be so crazy to have good white synergy, right? Yeah. And we just can't allow it. You gotta make them both the same creature type. Can't be okay. I think I'm a little higher on this card than you are. Well, I I will preface this by I just generally underrate aggressively slanted white cards. Yeah. Which has been a pretty reasonable place to be. Like, you get paid for underrating aggressively... Or for for not being high on aggressively slanted white cards recently. Because there's nothing you can do with them. And we don't have venerated locks on anymore, which which was the best one. Which was by the best a lot. one. It was the one that made all your bad cards good. Sadly, this is a really slow locks on. Yeah, I mean, it is really good if you can do hardened scales type stuff. But... And I, I really actually am big on the hardened scales type things, mm-hmm. even though I like never really play them. <laughs> They always like have a, a near and dear spot spot in my heart. Yeah, so well, I hope they're good. Particularly when you could do Ravager, Hangerback, Walker things. I never like, actually played that. That kind of math, like those turns were. That deck is nice. I really enjoyed when people were doing Winding Constrictor things mm-hmm. in Standard. I also never played those decks, but I appreciated them. <laughs> played a lot of Winding Constrictor in Standard. Yeah, they really fun, right? That card. Yeah, very Murders, fun. Gear Hulk, figure out how to array your counters. <laughs> yeah, although you often had a walking ballista in play. <laughs> that made it easy. Yeah. <laughs> Next up, I've got Felidar Retreat on here. This is three and a white for an enchantment with Landfall. Whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control, choose one. You can create a 2-2 white cat beast token or... Put a plus one, plus one counter on each creature you control. Those creatures gain vigilance until end of turn. So this is a lot better than the one, the retreat from, you know, Battle, Battle for Zendikar that made a 1-1 one, one token or pumped your guys plus one, plus one until end of turn. The big upgrade over that, which actually did see a little bit of standard play and was really good in limited. I would not be surprised if this card saw standard play. Yeah. It's kind of like a Planeswalker. Yeah. In that it's a, like a hard to deal with permanent type that gives you steady advantages over the game over the game a johnny goldmane being a glorious anthem plus vigilance that just like compounded each turn obviously that is many years ago at this point but when they went spectral procession into a johnny goldmane minus like holy crap you lost you you were so dead and this card 
seems I, I don't know if we'll see main deck play but i wouldn't be surprised at all if it sees sideboard play mm-hmm. because it, being able to create threats with your lands and this enchantment mm-hmm. and pump them up at the same time is worth doing if you can't if your opponent can't get rid of it yeah and i haven't seen the disenchant that's also a land yet so <laughs> i'm gonna have to assume that there's not gonna be many well you're gonna have to use the land planner cleansing to get rid of all of this <laughs> well i'll have to do it then <laughs> next up we have a card in french that i don't know the name of oh t- taste my lightning i don't the, think uh, it's actually called name. <laughs> But it's it's a sorcery for one and a red. Uh, it deals four damage to target creature or planeswalker. That's it. Yep. But I like that text. <laughs> it, it's comparable to Lava Coil, which is the same card, two mana, four damage to a creature, and it exiles it. This one can doesn't exile, so that's a downside. Yep. But it does hit planeswalkers, which is a huge upside. I had a lot of spots where I had a Lava Coil in hand and a planeswalker that I wanted to kill and could not so this makes good changes for like a control deck I, if you're playing if you're red based or you need removal for red mm-hmm. uh it was always a bummer when you're playing against you know a control opponent or someone who wasn't playing to the board where you just couldn't kill their thing yeah your lava coil was very bad right all of a sudden being able to target their teferi master of time is huge <laughs> are we losing scorching dragonfire is that in the core set we're not losing scorching dragonfire okay. it's in throne of eldraine Okay, right, right, right. But there's a big difference between three and four sometimes. Frequently, actually. Yeah, why did I think that was like a... I think I was probably associating it with Sarkin or something like that and thought it was a War of the Spark card. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a big difference between three and four, but there is also a difference between instant sorcery. Instant and sorcery. Yeah. It also exiles. Yeah, and it also, Dragonfire, it also exiles. Which is huge as long as it rose in the format, which hopefully is not going to be for another year. Right. Which is, you know, can't forget the trick with uro when you get it on the front side with scorching Dragonfire just to get rid of it forever so you don't have to worry about it yeah and you certainly like this card does nothing against uro so nope well you can you can target uro with it and be like all right now i'll concede <laughs> this is <laughs> that's all i've got this is not very good in this scenario i i think your default is to play scorching Dragonfire, and if there are very specific things that you need to kill maybe you grab this but you're like pretty bummed about it generally yeah i think you're right i'm really into this next card just because of the art or because of the actual card so the showcase art is phenomenal this is my favorite art that i've seen so far from the set and i'd be surprised if anything beats it out uh but this is valakit exploration two and a red for an enchantment landfall exile the top card of your library you may play that card for as long as it remains exiled at the beginning of your end step, if there are cards exiled with Valakut Exploration, put them into their owner's graveyard, then Valakut Exploration deals that much damage to each opponent. So I really like how this does the, like, skipping through the lands on the top of your library sort of thing, because Landfall makes the next card come up. So, although I guess you have to play a land. Yeah, you have to oh, play yeah, a land. that is awkward. Okay, yeah. I actually was surprised you put this one on there, because when I was reading it, I didn't think it was that yeah. special. Actually, yeah, it's not that good unless you, like, have finagled multiple land drops out of your turn, I guess. Right, because, like, the draw to these kind of effects... What was the one from Collins? Something Outpost? Outpost Siege? Outpost Siege, yeah. Yeah, Outpost Siege, Experimental Frenzy, mm-hmm. like, these... And Chandra Fire Artisan. Yeah. They're, like, the value red cards that get you past your... All your early game fuel is gone. Yeah. 
This card doesn't actually do that. Right, right. Because you have to have a land in order to look at the top card of your library. Mm -hmm. If that card is a land, you're not getting anything out of it. Yeah. Because you can't play it. Granted, you do get the damage at the end of this at the end of the turn. Right. But three mana for one damage turn is not a good rate. And playing a land in order to access your card advantage card without it just doing it on its own mm -hmm. is also not very good. So I guess this is probably more of and it really depends on the cards that are like around it. But I think you need either like multiple land drops or multiple landfall triggers in a turn, and then you can make this like pretty powerful. It'll like pay you. You you know, if you landfall and then you reveal the harrow analog from the set. I don't remember what it's called, but it's like bad harrow. Yeah. And then you do that and you get two landfall triggers and then you exile more cards and like if, like, if you can chain, like, ramp spells off of this, and then that leaves, like, a handful of cards, and then it deals, like, three to them at the end of your turn or something like that. I don't, like, yeah, I, I think baseline, this is, like, a pretty medium card, but I there's, like, a, a ceiling to it that could be pretty high, potentially. What I think this card needs to work is actually just ways to bounce your own lands, mm -hmm. like the one-drop that we said was very bad. I still think that card's not good, mm -hmm. even in conjunction with this one. Yeah. But if there's something that, you know, has an activability that picks up a land to do something, mm -hmm. and then you get to play lands to access more cards with this, yeah. you're, like, assembling a little engine there. I mean, but your engine might be whatever you have put together for your aggressive landfall deck anyways. Yeah. And you're just, like, kind of, like, this is a way of putting a real threat that's not a creature into play that is also enabled by your landfall synergy cards. I don't think this is a real threat, though. Because you, your, your threat is, if you play a land, you get to draw a card, mm -hmm. right? If you don't have a land, it doesn't do anything. Right. And I think that that means that... Well, so, like, picture your landfall deck that has a ton of cards that are also lands. I mean, I guess that kind of sucks because you want to be the, casting the spell side of that. spells point. on the other side. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know exactly how to use this, but I, I like I'm just like getting a feeling from it. Like there's a there are ways to get like a lot of landfall triggers and let like convert them into cards or damage. And if like damage matters, then and this is just dealing some amount of damage and giving you some amount of cards on turns, like that is obviously you're kind of going off with rampant growth type spells or whatever. Uh but I don't know. It feels to me like there's something here. It might not do anything. And yeah, baseline, it doesn't work particularly well on its own. But I think you can enable it. But we'll see. I, I wish we had like a colony art expedition. Mm -hmm. That's a way to just put lands into play, especially multiple for kind of free, mm -hmm. where you could get card selection that way. But when you have to spend mana to do that, it gets a little much harder to use this card. Sure. So I'm on the lookout for cards that let me put lands into play without actually spending a land drop or mana. Mm -hmm. And that's how I think this card will actually get ahead. Yeah. Until then, I'm not particularly sold on it. Though I honestly probably may buy it just for the, the card art on the expedition <laughs> side, or the showcase side. Yeah. We're talking about the next one? Yes. So next one is Ameria's Call. This is the white mythic land spell for white 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 for a sorcery create two four four white angel warrior creature tokens with flying non-angel creatures you control gain indestructible until your next turn and the other side is a land that makes white and you can bolt yourself to make it come into play untapped this was the first of the bolt lands 
it got spoiled, I think, right after we actually finished recording mm-hmm. last week. Uh, it's just a fine card. <laughs> it's one of the cards where, you know, you're not really going to put it in your deck, but it's got a really strong effect. Two angels and protecting your whole team for a turn, very strong. Yeah, not the angels, though. Those can Yeah, die. it doesn't protect the angels, but... And I think often that will be your whole team in the type of deck that this is in, but... Sure. I mean, you could just play this in, like, a mid... If there's any mid-range white deck, you'd include a couple mm-hmm. of these just because it's a land. Yeah. And then having army and a can type cards is always good in those decks. Mm-hmm. Or if you have a uh, Felidar Retreat going leading up to this, make those cats indestructible. Give your angels vigilance. Plus one, plus one counters and vigilance. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah it's just a solid card, I think. Yeah. I think it's totally fine. And it is... You know, land, big spell on the other side that affects the board in a very real way. Like, yeah. Two four four angels are going to cl- close the game out pretty quickly. If there's anything you can take away from this podcast is that the blue one sucks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving on, we've got Zagras, Thief of Heartbeats. Four black red for a 4-4 legendary vampire rogue. Costs one less to cast for each creature in your party. Flying, death touch, haste. Other creatures you control have death touch. Whenever a creature you control deals combat damage to a planeswalker, destroy that planeswalker. I asked to put this card on here mostly due to the interaction with Soren Imperious Bloodlord mm-hmm. in Pioneer, which is the three mana Soren, the one that you can put a vampire in play from your yes, hand. Yes, the bonker Soren. Yeah, the really good Soren. Because uh, that, that that's a really good card to cheat out with Soren, a 4 4 haste creature right. that gives all your vampires. Super Death Touch. Yeah. I don't think you're attacking Planeswalkers very often, but Death Touch is good enough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know the class composition of Vampire's decks as they're built in Pioneer. I don't know how often the cost reduction will come into play. Yeah, and I mean, this is a thing that for a lot of these party cards, just like, it's going to make things that we've never thought about before kind of important. What is the creature type on Gifted Aetherborn and stuff? That one's a rogue. That one's that. a rogue. Great. <laughs> I mean, good start, I guess. Um, there's probably some warriors in the vampire deck, too. Yeah, you gotta... Well, the the best card in that deck is, like, a knight, right? The uh, Ebon... Yeah, Knight of the Ebon Legion is definitely a vampire knight. And, I like, there's probably some warriors in play. I think Oversoul of Dusk, maybe? Not Oversoul of Dusk. What's it called? Champion of Dusk. Champion of Dusk. Champion of Dusk is probably a warrior, but that was already... A five drop. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, you Soren cheat in to play your Champion of Dusk, draw one of these... Play it. And then play it for four mana, hopefully. Like, that... I can see that. Like, that does seem pretty powerful. Like, it's a card I have my eye on for, like, Vampire's decks. Sure. The only bad part, of course, is that Black Red has an awful mana base in Pioneer. Right. And that is not getting fixed quite yet. Uh, we don't get the duel in this set for Black Red, but we are getting it in the next set. Yeah, and I pray to God we get some fast lands. Just mm-hmm. ASAP. Just finish the cycle out for Pioneer. I mean, and the other thing that's happening here is that Vampires is pretty happy being mono-black and having, like, a lot of castles and muta vaults. True, yeah. And that's a huge part of the power of that deck. And losing that, you really got to make it worth it. And I mean, this card is like pretty powerful, but like Soren's already crazy good in that deck. Yeah, you do don't we... need to make it that much better. Right. But I do like the next vampire mm-hmm. we have on this thing, which is uh, Nighthawk Scavenger. Yep. It's a one black black vampire rogue that is a one plus star three. 
So it's got three toughness always, and its power is equal to one plus the number of card types among cards in your opponent's graveyards. It's kind of a Tarmogoyf's toughness sort of thing. Plus one. <laughs> yes. So if they've got an instant and a sorcery, that's two. It's a three three. Yes. And it has flying, death touch, and lifelink. Right. So this is just Vampire Nighthawk, but basically always better. And some often just way better. Yeah, I would be surprised if it's not base 2-3 a large majority of the time. Mm-hmm. Which is Vampire Nighthawk stats. Right. A if card, which... if your opponent has a card in their graveyard, it's a Vampire Nighthawk. Yeah. Vampire Nighthawk saw play an extended <laughs> when fairies was attack. <laughs> And so, yeah, sometimes this is just going to be a three mana like Baneslayer Angel. Yeah, which is hard to deal with. Yeah, no first strike on like Baneslayer, so it does trade with anything. But mm-hmm. I mean, it's three mana. You can't race this card. No, absolutely not at all. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe Uro can. Yeah, Uro <laughs> certainly can, and Uro shrinks its power. So, so Uro can definitely race this card. But what else is new? Yeah, I mean, it's at least you can trade it for Uro. <laughs> Yep. Cool. But I, I do like this card. Yeah, it's obviously very pushed, and uh, if your opponent is attacking you with creatures and you play Nighthawk Scavenger, they need a removal spell for it. Yep, and soon, because they can't allow you, if they're, especially if they're a creature deck, they can't allow you to get too many hits in. Correct. We've got some simpler cards here. Uh, we've got Akum Hellhound, which is just red for a Steplinks. Which is a land, you know, Sepplings was in 2009, so... I guess that's fair. <laughs> this is a, a an Elemental Dog 01 mm-hmm. that has landfall. It gets plus two, plus two until I'm turn. Yeah. Uh, this makes me much more tempted to play those, like, kind of bad Steplings decks in Modern, even. If you get eight of these... Okay. Like, Steplings, when things go well and you play it turn one and then you just are attacking them for four each turn with it, like, that's really, really powerful. The problem is that in modern, there's a lot of lava darts right now, so you don't actually want to be doing that. But maybe one day. Yeah, hopefully. I played against a Steplinks deck in day two of the last SCG event that Urza and Oko and Opal were all legal in. I I also did that, yes. (laughs) Did you really? Yeah, I played against a a Steplinks Renegade Rallyer deck. I wonder if it was the same guy. It might have been. Yeah. Because there can't have been that many people playing it. No. But, yeah, I, I, so people lo- like this archetype a lot, even yeah. when it's not particularly strong. Yep, yep. So I expect to see this card just played. Yeah, it's, like, pretty tempting once you have eight of a relatively powerful effect, especially when it's something that, like, stacks, like, this, like yeah. these one-drops. As far as standard goes, if you're playing a landfall deck, this is your one-drop. Yep. Hopefully there's another Goblin Guide in the set, but I'm not holding my breath. Yeah, hopefully there's something. Maybe a good green drop. One drop. Yeah, and we got the red-green land that you get to choose based on what you got in your hand. It'll work. Hopefully. Hopefully. I'm dying for an aggro deck to finally be good in standard. It would be really nice. I don't even play them. I just want some variety. (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, even if the red-green landfall deck is, like, pretty good, it's still going to be an Embercleave-enabled aggro deck. Yeah, I'm fine with that. Yeah, it, it's just like, there's one thing that we can do to attack with creatures, and that's Embercleave them up. Embercleave's such a cool card. Yeah, it is very cool, and really good. And speaking of equipment, mm-hmm. maybe not on Embercleave's level. Not quite. But this is Maul of the Skyclaves is the next card. Mm-hmm. It's two and a white for an equipment. 
Uh, when it is the battlefield, you attach it to a target creature you control, just like Embercleave. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike Embercleave, <laughs> it only gives the creature plus two plus two flying and first strike, and it equips for two white white. Mm-hmm. So this is, I don't. This is like the good equipment I've seen in the set, other than the adventuring gear yeah. counterpart. Yeah, yeah. Because this is just a like solid aura. Plus two plus two flying and first strike are good stats. And when it falls off, when your creature doesn't matter anymore or dies, mm-hmm. you can make the next creature a good card. Yeah. The problem is that it is a white card, and I don't know how that all shapes up. Right. But on a individual card basis, if we have a good white aggressive deck, like this is the kind of card that is like pretty fine this to is, put down onto a creature. This is kind of your Embercleave. Yeah. I... One thing that really gets my wheels turning a little bit on this one is that it is definitely the equipment that you want in your Nahiri deck. Yeah. So this comes down and attaches for free. Once they kill the creature that it's on, then you play your Nahiri, start putting those core tokens into play. This attaches for free to them, and then they are 3-3 flying first strike tokens. And it attaches to free for them because that's what Nahiri does. Right, right. Which I want to specify just in case people don't remember. Yes. And Nahiri can dig for your Mall of the Sky Claves if that's what you want at the time, which because you have Nahiri in play might just be what you want. And if you ever get two of these out with a Nahiri, all of a sudden your creature, your cores are <laughs> five fives. Yeah. <laughs> this is not legendary. It's just a regular equipment. The only equipment that we have been putting into play is legendary, so... Yeah, you can dual-wield malls, unlike Embercleave. Yeah, and when you're getting free equips, like, you know, generally having multiple equipments in play, like, feels kind of bad just because you don't have enough mana to do that. But if you're getting free equips over and over again, like, I could see it. This is one of the cards that makes Nahiri much more interesting to me. And do we have the white-red land yet? Yes, we do. Okay. We do have the white red land. So, I mean, that is still only one duel for that deck. It's the needle slash pillar one. Yes, right. Okay. So, you know, I'd be interested in trying that as long as the other ingredients are in place for it. I would love to look at the standard format where not only is Landfall a good deck, but some Nahiri pile is fine. With, like, multiple different equipments and stuff. Yeah, just, like, some more variety in the standard gameplay that we've been playing for, like, Mm -hmm. the last two years would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. It would be... (sighs) See, the thing is, like, even if you're, like, putting this on a token and you're, like, making some 3-3 flyers and stuff, you're, like, getting to the point in the game where they're just, like, escape my Uro. I'm so tired of Uro. I'll take three. All right, I'll attack in game three. Kill your Nahiri. <laughs> uh, I I think this is, if there's only five equipment in the set, I believe we've seen all five at this point, mm-hmm. and only the green and the white one are worth talking about, which is a little disappointing because I would have liked more of the equipment to be on the level of the white or green one. For sure. And the green one's not like a splashy rare or anything. It's just like a solid role-playing equipment. Yeah, we already had this card before. And the other ones, the other equipment that are have been revealed that we haven't talked about, the black, the red, and the yeah. blue one, they're like just, pretty limited they're focused. just not very good. Yeah. A little disappointing for my hopes for Nahiri to have like a couple different playable options. Yeah. But I guess they're a little gun-shy on equipment. Well, Innistrad might have some. 
some of those improvised weapons for slaying werewolves and vampires with. It's just going to be all blazing torches and pitchforks. <laughs> Sharpened pitchfork. I... From just, like, an aesthetic and, like, flavor standpoint, I love the equipment in this. Oh, they're really cool. Yeah. I especially loved dying to Butcher's Cleaver. Okay, that one was a mistake. <laughs> the Invisible Stalker-Butcher's Cleaver combo was not okay. But, yeah, the equipment in Innistrad were all super cool and flavorful. Yeah. Without having any real standard impact, except for Runechanter Spike, which was still fine. Yeah. If it hadn't also been on, like, a huge shroud creature. <laughs> Hexproof, I guess. Yeah, Runechanter Spike was... So, Runechanter Spike gave Equip Creature first strike and plus X plus O, where X is the number of instants and sorceries in your graveyard, and that would go on to Delvers of Secrets and Geists of St. Traft and... Drog Skull Captain. Drog Skull Captain. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, Spirit with a Drog Skull Captain in play. Um, Yeah, it did a lot of damage in Standard. Um, that's all the cards that I have picked out. I have no idea if we've missed anything, but, you know, we'll we've, talk about a lot of the cards. We've probably missed a couple cards, but the whole set's not out yet anyway. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we'll come back yeah. for another podcast and talk about some more Zendikar cards. We got plenty of time. Yeah. All right, so for our Patreon question of the week, Mike Braverman asks, thoughts on Modern Horizons 2 and if it will ruin Modern again? Also just want to shout out Mike for you know, doing well this weekend with, with Phoenix. We mentioned that earlier, but, you know, I watched his matches and was pretty bummed that he didn't top eight. Yeah. But we we actually forgot to talk about Modern Horizons, what was it, last week? Yeah. We talked about all the announcements. Yeah. Because we had spoken about all of them, like, before we recorded the podcast, and mm-hmm. I guess we just forgot to talk about Modern Horizons during the actual podcast. Yeah, I mean, because there's not a ton memorable about the... Like, we know that we're getting Modern Horizons, so okay, that is kind of a big deal. And we know that Fetchlands are in it. Okay. So what do you... We know Fetchlands are in it. That's whatever. That's obviously a good thing. Yes. But what do you think about Modern Horizons 2? Does it excite you or worry you? So... I mean, if I were to put myself in the headspace I was at after Modern Horizons came out, it would certainly worry me. But looking a little more broadly at everything, it's like not that much more broken than the sets that followed (laughs) it immediately that were legal and standard. Like, obviously, Hogak was crazy powerful. Yeah. And Ren and Six messed up Legacy because Wasteland is in that format. And, and so so just from a, like, how badly did the, like, bannable cards screw up the formats that they're legal with? Not more than Oko, really. Yeah. Not really more than Once Upon a Time and Oko together in one set. Like, it's similar impact there. One thing that I am sympathetic to is this idea of creating sets for eternal format legality that just injects cards straight into them that didn't ever like go through standard and it sort of i don't know if this is just some weird like old grumpy man like purity thing or whatever but like it's one thing getting beaten up by a goblin guide a card with tons of history behind it like very good you know best one drop red creature ever like very powerful but has a ton of history behind it and when it beats you you're like yep i lost to that goblin guide it's kind of another thing losing to renin six came down on turn two 
what is this thing? Oh my god, my opponent just drew five cards and now it's going to ultimate. Like, we never, like, had time to adjust to the existence of these cards. We never, like, got that understanding of them that comes from them being, like, real magic cards. So it does, just from a philosophical, aesthetic, whatever standpoint, like, getting those cards injected into the format that just, like, now exist out of nowhere and are designed to be better than... A lot of them are designed to be better than most of the cards that we got through Standard and have history behind them. It feels a little weird to me. Uh, Yeah, I get that, sort of. I don't feel the same way, because... I think that only really matters to the cards that are just very, very, very powerful, mm-hmm. like Hogak and Renin Six. Mm-hmm. Like, if my opponent plays, help me remember the name of the Pyromancer that Ramadan. Season Pyromancer. Season Pyromancer. Yeah. Like, if they play Season Pyromancer against me, I don't care how much history is behind it because it's just a reasonable card to exist. Yeah. Like, even Urza, Lord Higher Artificer, like my favorite card in that entire set, I'm not like. What is the history behind Urza? I didn't get to play this card in Standard. Mm-hmm. I understand that it's powerful, but very niche. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't feel like my opponent has like gotten the better... Or Wizards has cheated me sure. from learning all the stuff or going through a Standard set. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm more... And like even the cards that obviously can't be printed into Standard because they're too powerful, like uh, Sarah the Benevolent, mm-hmm. was the Planeswalker, which sees absolutely no play right. anywhere right. at all, but it's way too powerful for Standard. I'm fine if cards like those exist. Mm-hmm. Like the There is a balance between not putting a super egregious card in a manner that's hard to obtain. And I think that was the case for like True Name Nemesis, for Legacy in 2013 or whatever when the commander decks came out for the first time mm-hmm. i think that was way too much true name nemesis at the time was far too good yep. too hard to deal with didn't make any sense and yeah. you couldn't get the card right but if they just print as much modern horizons 2 as they did modern horizons 1 and you can like get the cards and they're not all ren and six or hogak because i think those two cards i'm more forgiving for ren and six than i am for hogak <laughs> <laughs> because ren and six is like a cool card for modern yeah and it still is a cool card in modern, yeah. Yeah, but as long as they avoid Hogak or Oko or Underworld Breach, which is not a card to ex- could okay to exist, right, right. Then I- I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt to like put cards into modern, as long as it's not in like s- weird auxiliary products. Yeah, I mean, my worry is the first Modern Horizons, like they just said that they didn't test it. Yeah. <laughs> like, they didn't build modern decks with these cards designed to be put into modern. And I don't think that's how they approached Modern Horizons 2, because I know that, like, Sam Black was on the team for that. Yeah. And that inspires a lot of hope to me that it will be, you know, tested for it. Modern Horizons was... Was that technically within the fire, philosoph- the, the fire Philosophy era, or was it outside of it and still we got Hogak and Ren and Six and stuff? I'm not sure. Because I think it was developed much earlier than yeah. anything else. Like, the timeline's really weird with those auxiliary products. Right. Uh, the thing that actually worries me the most about Modern Horizons 2 is that I think the development time is too short. Mm-hmm. Because Modern Horizons was just last year. Yeah. It takes them, uh, like, a year to a year and a half to actually develop these sets. Mm-hmm. And if they're trying to make a set that's impactful in Modern sure. with new cards... 
this is clearly uh, it got like fast tracked. I'm sure because Modern Horizons One sold so much and it was so successful. Mm-hmm. And I don't have the confidence that you know even with the mistakes in the first Modern Horizons, which they had, you know, how much? Who knows how much time they had to work on? Yeah, yeah. Because it's not a it's not a standard set. They kind of fast tracked Modern Horizons Two to come out like two years later, mm-hmm. and I don't know how stable it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah, that worries me. That is definitely true. We'll just have to see, I guess. It is definitely a concern. I I feel like their approach to it is probably, you know, the one way of looking at it could be like, well, if Modern Horizons 1 was before Fire Philosophy and now they did Modern Horizons 2 and just like added Fire Philosophy into the mix of the whole thing, then maybe it's a disaster. I don't know exactly like when the development cycle was, how much they like understood or even now understand like the problems caused by however. And not, I still don't even know what Fire Philosophy is, but apparently it results in... F is for friends who do stuff together. Yeah. <laughs> U is for uranium bombs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Like I still don't like get like how it is like what exactly it means and how it like results in like how do you translate from the like buzzwords into once upon a time existing like i don't like that i i i get that like it's a different era of design and like holy crap these cards are really powerful but those those buzzwords attached to fire to me wouldn't like if i were a designer saying like being told to do this stuff come up with interesting replayable except whatever it is like that doesn't then make me go free cantrip (laughs) card that makes everything not more replayable right so like it's weird to like clearly this is a different era and i guess it's to blame but it doesn't feel like this is the thing that would be to blame for just like cards that cost one mana too little or are free like i i just don't get it i guess yeah, I don't, I don't know about that, but I am net excited for Modern Horizons two. Mm-hmm. I I really liked Modern Horizons one. Like I even really enjoyed, especially once Hogak was gone. I because I actually really did enjoy playing Hogak for a little bit. Yeah, because it was really novel and very powerful. It was like pretty fun, and it is a perfect fit for Legacy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> perfect fit for Legacy. <laughs> but after Hogak was gone, I really enjoyed the set. I really did. I Urza is one of my favorite cards of all time at this point, mm-hmm. and I hope we get more niche cards like Urza and probably less ubiquitous cards like Astrolabe. Yeah, we did get a bunch of really cool cards. Lava Dart, mod- yeah, Lava Dart was a spectacular reprint. I hope that we get more cool reprints of just like stuff that should be in modern. Now I'm blanking on like the list of several that Kapal I- therapy. Cabal Therapy would be very good, but I think it would promote deck archetypes that are hard to put together in modern otherwise. As, especially since we don't have Bridge from Below or anything like that. Yeah, true. You have to play an actual creature deck to do Cabal Therapy stuff. Cabal Therapy is one of my favorite design cards of all time. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, if that makes a Cabal Therapy Stitcher Supplier Young Pyromancer deck like a thing in modern... Sign me up. Like, yes, perfect. That's delightful. So yeah, there's like a bunch of reprints that I would love to see that it would be the perfect place for for that. And cards like Season Pyromancer, Aria Flame, like things that just like filled in weird spots 
and like that red green deck that everybody <laughs> that people tried to play for a long time and now the format opened up and allowed you to do kind of weaker stuff but also the deck wouldn't exist without being able to play four season pyromancer in it yeah it it helps a lot yeah and there's like cool suspend decks with the rhino card now too mm-hmm. there's like a lot of really neat niche cards that are good right and, but have very specific homes so people can play with them and i think in that regard modern horizons one was really good yeah and honestly like my initial like oh i lost to this card that i don't even know what it is anymore like the cards get a history behind them we all know what red and six does now it's like part it's absolutely part of magic the even the rhino card is like yeah, I know my friend was goofing around with some deck that casts free spells and puts two rhinos into play. Like, I'm aware of this card. And Arkham's Astrolabe. Right. Everyone knows that card. Right. At some point, they really do just become magic cards, and it doesn't really matter that they didn't go through standard. And it's, like, kind of okay. And ultimately, we ended up with a lot of cool stuff from Modern Horizons, and hopefully we can end up with a lot of cool stuff from Modern Horizons, too. And maybe some stuff has to... I mean... <laughs> Modern Horizons did just, like, come in and take out Mox Opal and Faithless Looting along the way, which kind of sucked. It but... took out Faithless Looting. Mox Opal was a Gilded Goose Oko thing. Yeah, I guess that's true. All right, that that's fair. So I mean, it's also an Astrolabe thing, though. If you uh, Yes. Without Astrolabe, that, none of that would have happened. But, like, Astrolabe was fine. Mox Opal and Astrolabe were fine when, like, before all those Thronewheel Drain cards came out. Emery, Opal, or Emery, uh, Oko, yeah. and... Gilded Goose? Yeah, it's true. I mean, Fire Philosophy came in, I guess, and took out Vox Opal. <laughs> but, so, maybe there will be some collateral damage from Modern Horizons too. Well, luckily there's not that many pillar cards people actually love that are actually good yeah. in Modern. Like, we're not taking out Stoneforge and Chris Celestial Colonnade, because those cards just aren't that strong. Yeah. I do think that the loss of those pillar cards even though i you know mox opal was really really powerful i the loss of these pillars for modern is a pretty big deal and has like left us with a format that is i don't mentally like grasp the bounds of the format the way i don't like know the landscape innately the way that i had this like really deep understanding of just like what do modern decks have? What do they look like? What do they need to deal with? Now it's decks. It's like a different, for- it's a different format in the way that like a couple of weeks into Pioneer, we started looking at Pioneer decks and we're like, huh, this is what you can do in this format, huh? And modern is, to me, it feels like that. It's not connected to old modern in like any way. Yeah, I think it was probably a net mistake to ban those pillars. I'm far more sympathetic to Mox Opal than I am to Faithless Looting. <laughs> That's biased, but also like kind of neutral as well. Mm-hmm. Because the the worst thing about Faithless Looting in Modern is there's no analog to it. Like there's no careful study or red version of that effect. Yeah. Because Flashback is what puts us over the top. Mm-hmm. If there was just a red careful study, yeah. I think it'd be fine and good to exist. Because then you get all those graveyard decks back without them having like the extra, oh, I got this card in my graveyard for free right. <laughs> kind of deal, you know? Uh, but with Mox Opal, you just cut off Affinity and all the, like, a Lantern and all the neat artifact decks people were playing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. People loved having Lantern around in Modern. That was... I mean, not... 
<laughs> so Lantern was played by less than 1% of people in modern, mm-hmm. and they only played it. <laughs> and it's not like you like love to play against Lantern or whatever. But those people did love playing Lantern. Right, and that's the thing is, like, not only do we end up with this, like, completely ill-defined format now, like, you took away a lot of people's decks. Yeah. Like, that they, that was part of their identity as a Magic player. And that is not great. And the problem with, like, I, I think Faithless Living, if it was just replaced by Red Careful Study, you'd see a bunch of graveyard decks come back and people could play those decks again. Right. There's no replacement for Mox Opal. And you've already banned all the worst offenders, which was Oko and Astrolabe. Yeah. So if you bring back Ash, Opal and Faithless Looting, or whatever the new Faithless Looting will be, I think Modern gets a lot of its old shape back and people get to play their decks again. Mm-hmm. The sad thing is I don't think Wizards will do that. No, I don't think they will either. Yeah, the biggest just like crime in the Faithless Looting ban is that you killed all of the graveyard decks except for Dredge. Yes, and and people don't get to play like Mardu Pyromancer or anything right. anymore, which is another really cool pet deck people really liked. Like no, there are no graveyard synergies even in modern anymore that are playable. Like except for having Luris, Mystic Sanctuary. Yeah, the most powerful graveyard synergy card. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> kind of honestly. I mean, it's very good, and just like. The only graveyard deck, the only graveyard synergies you're allowed to do are just this abomination deck that doesn't really play magic in the way that people play magic. And then they also just printed Ox of Agonis for it so that Dredge can have a Faithless Looting, but nobody else can. Yeah. that It's so weird. I don't get it. <sighs> yep. So I hope that answered Mike's question. <laughs> I think the, the short answer is, don't think it will ruin modern... Did Modern Horizons 1 ruin Modern? No. I think leading to the Faithless Looting ban was like step one of turning Modern into something that is not necessarily bad, but it's not Modern anymore. And so if that made you feel that like Modern is not for you anymore, then it kind of did. But, you know, you got to define your terms here and figure out what you what you really believe they mean. I'm for Modern Horizons 2. I'm looking forward to the spoilers. Not as much as I was for Modern Horizons 1, Mm because it was much newer, much more exciting. But I I don't care anything about the D&D set. I'm just reserving all my excitement for (laughs) Modern Horizons 2 instead. I get it. Yeah, give me Cabal Therapy. I'm down. Yeah. Thank you so much to everybody for listening. We really, really appreciate your time. Uh, To all of our patrons, thank you so much for your support. Look out for that bonus episode coming soon. If you are not a patron and you would like to become one, head over to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. You'll get some swag. You'll get in the Discord. You will get access to the bonus episodes as they come out. And, you know, you'll get our undying thanks. Gratitude, love, all that that jazz. Everything that you could want from us, emotionally speaking. If you want to find us online, we are on Twitter. I'm tweeting from at CCR underscore Grindcast. Lee is also on Twitter. I am at Lee McLeo. Thanks so much, and have a great week. Bye.